Are you working on your author career, but struggling to get that first book published? Does the goal of being an author seem too lofty? Or thoughts of having multiple books and making a full-time living are as fantastical as living in Cinderella's castle? Welcome to Discovered Wordsmiths, a podcast where aspiring authors can be heard. Join Steven Schneider as he finds and talks to authors you may not know, but authors that have gotten their foot on the author career path. Hear what they've done to get there and where they want to go now. Settle back. It's time for a bit of inspiration and advice. Come listen to today's Discovered Wordsmith. Let's talk a little author stuff, actual writing in that for the authors. So what are some things you've got? said 14 books out what are some things for your writing that you're doing different now than you did when you first started ah okay my first book took me four years and it was really hard because i was starting from scratch and there wasn't this isn't i started it in about 1999 2000 and yeah, it was brutally difficult, partly because I was I just didn't know how to write a nonfiction book. And a friend of mine who is a technical writer doing technical writing stuff, the documents that come with a device to tell you how to work it, the instruction manuals, things like that. And he's basically sent me a like a template for okay, this is the thing, this is the name of the drill, number the drill out like this. And he, he gave me this template. I was like, Oh my god, that is so useful. I have a friend of mine called Martin Page, who's also a, now a novelist. And that really helped kind of get into the way of how do you express these things on the page. But the really critical thing was eventually I figured out that you should just talk. Right? So if somebody sends me an email saying, Guy, I've got a long sword. And when somebody tries to hit me like this, what am I supposed to do? So I'll write back saying, stand like this and then you swing the sword like that and then you hit their sword like this and then you hit them like that and da, 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 da. and that is the tone that actually works in the book i basically i got out of my own way so the first book took four years the second book took two years then my kids came along so there was a bit of a hiatus in the whole writing <laughs> thing and then remember, for me it's never been my main gig i don't it's always been, okay, I teach historical martial arts. I, people need these books so they can learn historical martial arts. And it will actually save me a lot of time if they've read my books before they even come to class. That would speed things up enormously. So I'm producing these books as part of the broader project of getting historical martial arts out to the people that need it. Okay? Likewise with my online courses, I started those in 2016. And the process was basically, ah, okay. Here's a skill we need to learn, and, and I pretend I have a student there, or sometimes I actually do have a student there, and I just teach them the stuff, and we video it, and we stick it up online, and it works. It doesn't have to be that hard. So, does that actually answer your question? So I went off on yeah, a bit of a no. sidetrack there. And, and that's one of the things I was going to mention to you, too, because I've heard you on other podcasts, and I've looked through your website and that, and I like how the writer-author of you is part of your life, but it's part of the whole. You've got multiple things in your life that you do for a living, for a job, but also your interest and passion. And the one thing that stuck out to me when I first heard you before was you you wrote these books, you became a writer, 
the instinct I think a lot of times people do is to now I'm going to offer service to help other writers how to write grammar, how to write a fiction book, templates. Or they offer, I'm a writer, so I offer writer services, but you're a sword guy. You study yeah. swords, you research, you have texts, you, your books, your classes, your lessons, it's all with the sword. So I thought that was, for me, an important distinction to point out for other writers that just because you're a writer, if you're writing a book on car repair, you might be better off finding other avenues, other income related to the car repair rather than trying to teach people how to write a book. Yeah, and it's a very, you know, teaching writing is a very well-served market. There are lots of good books on how to write and lots of good resources on how to publish when you have written. Yes. And honestly, I'm not that interested in how to write. I'm interested in how to swing swords. And so I, I've learned how to write books because it was a necessary thing in the same way that I learned how to do lunges in the style of Capoeira. I actually found learning the lunges more interesting than, than the learning to write. <laughs> but actually also... Probably the most, the single most useful thing in my writing career, as in terms of developing my skills as a writer, was way back in the early 90s. I did a degree in English literature where I actually had to write essays, which were then critiqued by a professor, okay? which meant that I was taught how to express myself clearly, consistently, and in a logically supportable way. So how to create an argument on a page, how to present your opinion on the page. I was taught that by English literature professors at Edinburgh University in the early 90s. That seems super helpful because I don't offer writer services as you described, but quite a few of my students and colleagues have written books and I have helped them with a lot of them because I have more writing experience than most of my colleagues. And so they say, oh, guy, I've written this book. Can you have a look at that? And often single biggest thing I have to tell them is, look, you're making this way too complicated. You're trying to make every sentence completely bulletproof against any kind of criticism. And so it goes on for 27 pages and has 18 million subcourses. Okay. What you really mean is, was born here, and this means that. Or hold the sword like this and swing it like that, or whatever. So just say that. You don't need all that sort of protective... It's almost like they camouflage what they're trying to say, protect it criticism whereas i think it's, it's better just to be completely clear about what you mean which means of course you have to think it through first you have to be absolutely clear in your head what you actually mean and that's what actually occurs in the writing process so i write a book to find out things rather than because i've already found out stuff. like my second book the Jewish companion i wrote it because i knew i needed to have a fully thought out interpretation of capoeira's rapier system and so I thought the best way to do that is to write a book. And so I wrote a book as I was doing the research. I was writing the book and that clarified my thinking and it organized everything. And it, it just made it all fit together much more kind of cleanly than it would have done if I just let it, you know, let the interpretation develop just willy nilly. Yeah. And I like that you've helped other writers, but you don't want to be that. Yeah, you don't want to write a book on how to write a book on writing on swordplay. No, if if you want a for a nonfiction, I think the absolute best how to write sort of craft of writing book 
It's by William Zinster. I'm blanking on the title for some reason. Yeah. Oh. Can you find it and stick it in the show notes for people? Yeah, I will. Yeah, I've got that one. How to write well or something like that. On writing well, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. And it's basically all about being absolutely clear and getting out of your own way. Yeah. And I think that's what holds a lot of authors back. They get nervous. Oh, am I do I sound smart enough to my peers? But who who cares if the other writers like you? It's your audience for your book. That's who yeah. you have to write yeah, yeah. for. So you mentioned a, a good topic for us to discuss a little bit. Basically, do you want to write or do you want to be a writer? And okay. that, that intrigued me. What, what exactly were you thinking with that? All right. Well, let me give you an example from my own life. When I graduated in 1996, I thought I want to be a cabinet. Right, so a high-end furniture maker and an antiques restorer, someone who is artistically restoring these beautiful old wooden furniture. And so I went and did that. You, you only have one life to live. And so I thought, this is what I want to do. I'm going to go and do that. Because it wasn't actually what I wanted to do. But I found working 40-odd hours a week doing it was kind of frustrating and it didn't work. I was I acquired and some parts of it were quite enjoyable but it was not that I particularly wanted to actually make the furniture I wanted to have made it I wanted to be standing there next to this beautiful table I've just made and have people go "Ooh, that's a beautiful table and I go yes I know I just made it isn't it lovely and so it was all about outcome and not about process okay and eventually I switched to in 2000 I had the inspiration to start my school and so in 2001 I definitively switched from doing woodwork for a living to historical martial arts for a living and that went much better because I wasn't so much I wasn't tied to this I want to be a sword master whatever that is it was I want to teach class I want to have students in front of me and I want to be teaching them how to swing these swords around and I want to see them getting better okay it's, it's not a it's not a question of identity. It's a question of process. I'm learning to fly planes, and sure enough, I am on the course that leads to a private pilot's license because that's how they teach you to fly planes. I don't actually care about the license, and I don't care at what point in my flying career I get to call myself a pilot. I could call myself a pilot without ever having flown a plane if I wanted to. There's no law against it. I can't advertise my professional services pilot right. <laughs> there are laws about that but you can call yourself whatever you want right i could call myself a lord or a knight or anything if i wanted to and it might be true in my head but it wouldn't be true anywhere else but i like flying planes is amazingly cool it is just awesome in and of itself there's no way to justify it or explain it or rationalize it i could probably come up with rationalizations if i wanted to but i don't actually care i just really doing that scent that feeling when the plane just you're going along the runway and it just picks up enough airspeed that you just start coming off the ground and it turns from being this kind of waddling, clumsy sort of fish out of water, kind of duck waddling along the ground and then it takes off and it suddenly becomes in its proper element and it is graceful and smooth and ah, it's just glorious. I get that. that I, I, I don't care about am I a pilot. Yeah, call me a pilot if you want or not. Makes no difference to me. I don't call myself a pilot because when I have a 
if I get to the point where I actually have a pilot's license and somebody says, oh, are you a pilot? I'll say yes, because it will be technically true, but it's no part of what I'm actually trying to do. And the same with writing books. I don't, I haven't got this vision in my head of, I am a writer. And so I am in my study, my coffee, and my cigar, right, and my right. coat. And I am crafting these beautiful sentences and blah, 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 blah. I know, because I am a writer. That, that, that does not exist in my head. I just put it in everybody else's head, but that didn't exist because I is I don't care if anybody says calls me a writer or not. And I'd actually I'd had five books out at the moment when I needed a quick shorthand for what I did for a living, and because I didn't want to have a conversation about it, I said, "Oh yeah, I'm a writer," and it was technically true because I had five books published, by that point. but it wasn't a thing. It's not a. It's not a. It's not an aspirational title. It's not about it's identity. It's not the big part of your identity. It's just one thing. And we have this horrible notion in our culture of what do you want to be when you grow up? I'm still it's trying horrible. to figure that out. Yeah, my, my solution to it is not to grow up. But, <laughs> uh, but it's a wrong question because what do you want to do when you grow up is a much better question. If you want to study really hard and get good at surgery so you can do surgery then you need to become a doctor and then a surgeon just wanting to be a doctor rather than to actually practice medicine it's it doesn't work and you know i see it a lot with i'm i've been a member of various writing groups and what have you and people who have decided that what they are is I am a writer. I want to be a writer. What do I have to do to be a writer? And it's, But if you don't actually like writing, you probably should change the way you're thinking. And again, it, it really it boils down to prioritizing process over outcome. With the right processes, the outcome will occur. But if you focus on the outcome, you lose the process and everything goes horribly wrong. So yeah, if you like writing, by all means, write a lot. And at some point, you may well think, well, actually, if I had to say what one thing I am, I'm probably a writer because that's what I tend to do most. Or that's where most of my income comes from. Or that's where most of my sort of social connections and you know status in my community and what have you comes from. It doesn't have to be tied to money. But I do find that one student of mine many years ago actually asked me the question, at what point can I call myself a swordsman? And I said, does it matter? And he was like, and then I thought about it a bit, because it's one of the great things about having students is they ask you these questions and make you think about things in a way that you hadn't before. And so I thought about it, and I was like, I guess it makes sense to call yourself a swordsman when your swordsmanship practice is your primary lens through which you view the world. And it is for me. Like, I go about solving any problem from a swordsmanship perspective. When I'm terrified in the airplane because my instructor has just done some horrible aerobatic stunt thing and I think we're going to die, I get my heart rate back down and <laughs> pay attention to what I'm supposed to be doing through the disciplines of you know, handling stress through swordsmanship practice, like you know, breathing, breathing and focus. And that kind of thing. If I, I don't spend any real time thinking what Am I a swordsman? Am I a writer? Am I a parent? Am I a flyer of planes? 
a reader? Am I a watch repair person? Am I a cabinet maker? Am I, I am all of these things viewed at from a particular perspective. And I don't actually care about that because that's all external looking in. On the inside, for me, it's all connected. It's all basically the same thing. Writing books is part of teaching children. Making furniture is part of how do you structure things in the physical world? Yeah, which is part of swordsmanship. Like, you know, how do you break somebody's arm? It's the same way as you break open a joint. <laughs> if, if a joint in a, in a chair leg is in the wrong place or it's a joint in somebody's arm, it's, it's just physical manipulation of the world around you. I don't really identify it as being fundamentally different. Flying planes, it's fundamentally the same thing. It's about facing fear because I'm scared of heights. So it's actually quite frightening for me to be in a plane when it's off the ground. It's, you know, so it's, it has that relationship to causeship. It's also, there are absolutely fundamental physical laws in play for which no exceptions will be granted. It's a, it's a fantastically pure environment. The plane is only ever going to obey the laws of physics and no exceptions, which is the same when you're, you know, testing your interpretation against a resistant opponent. They are not going to not hit you because they don't want you to have a bad day. They're going to do their best to clock you in the head. And if your interpretation doesn't work, you're going to get clocked in the head. It's all part of the same thing. I like what you're saying because I, I have the same thing. So you could have, like you said, very easily said, I'm a writer. I write about swords. I write about how to After learn swords. Yeah. But it's all, I'm a swordsman. I, as a swordsman, I write books and I also teach and I also have online classes and I, whatever. I had the same revelation uh, myself when I first started. I wanted to write books to help kids inspire them to read or make mm -hmm. interesting books so kids would read more, especially boys. That was like my goal. And over time writing, I discovered that yes, I like writing the books, but that's only part of what I like to do. I also like doing games and now teaching story for video games. So all of these things cool. go together as a, as I say, a purveyor of fantasy. It's right, just perfect. different avenues uh, and writing's just yeah. one part of that. So, yeah, and and you, you mentioned games. I've produced a card game which teaches people how Fiore's longsword material it's together and works and the names of the guards and the blows and how they all fit together. I'm not a game designer. I am not a I don't know, game industry professional, although I have produced a game. But that's just another way of teaching people swords. And I don't even think of myself as a swordsman, to be honest. By any reasonable definition, I certainly am. I don't think of myself as If I had to be one thing, I would probably say parent. Which teacher. <laughs> If I wasn't if I wasn't teaching swordsmanship, I'd be teaching something else. A teacher probably comes before the swords. But again, why do we need a label for it? Why do I? Why it's does our true. culture expect us to define ourselves in terms of what we do? And I think you're right there. I think people get hung up on that sometimes. So yeah, sure. uh, there's probably people listening, probably people I talk to that. Oh, I got to be a writer. I've got to sit down every day. I've got to write so many words. I've got to get books out of it, and they get stressed about that. And maybe that's a sign that maybe writing's only part of what you do. That's not your main yeah. thing. Maybe there's something else. And I think when people, the people that have come to that understanding, it's, oh, 
I, I'm, I'm this, yeah. they, they do much better. But here's, here's a thought for you. In my Wizards of Method book, in one of the chapters about basically the principles of mastery, one of the fundamental principles is adopt useful beliefs. Okay? So believe things that help you accomplish your goals. For some people, I bet, for some people thinking, I am a writer and therefore I need to get my next book written. So I'm going to show up to work today and I'm going to get the next chapter done and I'm going to edit the previous chapter and I'm going to make a start on the next chapter after that. That's what I'm going to do today because I'm a writer. That can be a really useful belief. But if I am a writer means there's all this pressure, I'm trying to be this thing and it's not working and I'm not really good at it and, oh my God, the words aren't coming and blah, 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 then perhaps getting rid of that belief would help the words flow. Yeah, Again, absolutely. it's not a question of don't do this. It's a question of if you have this belief, is it serving your goals or is it not? And if it isn't, you should maybe change it. And if it yes. is, then you should maybe keep it. Nothing works for everyone, but most things work for someone. And doing that, the funny thing is, you probably have written more and gotten words down quicker, easier, because you're not stressed about being a writer. Right. Uh, you're, and so you've actually accomplished more of being a writer by not labeling it and stressing exactly. yourself out about it. Exactly. And also because it, it, it takes away fear of failure. When I produce a book, yeah, obviously, if you sell enough books, eventually you get some negative reviews. And they are horrible. I absolutely hate them. But they would be infinitely worse if they were attacking my fundamental sense of self. Right. So they're not criticizing me and my soul. They're criticizing the book that they didn't like. And that's really useful because if you are, if you have this belief, I am a writer and maybe it is serving you. It, it also means that you will take all criticism more personally because it's not just criticizing what you have just produced. It's criticizing you yourself. And that's hard. That puts a strain on a person. Yeah. If for me, like I said, I tell a purveyor of fantasy, I get fantasy stories, I get fantasy ideas, imagination, thoughts in multiple ways. So no one way is the defining method, avenue, or whatever. Right. Uh, and that takes a lot of pressure off doing any of it. And it helps actually produce more, I found. Yeah, absolutely. And but again, it, it varies from person to person. Some people really need that external pressure. But personally, I'm extremely physically lazy. So given my druthers, I would spend most of every day lying on the sofa, eating chocolate, watching TV, because I just would. But I have these students, and my students depend on me to get this stuff done. And if I'm going to be teaching a class, I can't show up to class with my six months on the sofa with massive chocolate ingestion body. I have to show up able to, you know, run a decent warm up and do all the techniques and throw people on the ground and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, you know, I found during the pandemic, like in May, my is my basically because I wasn't traveling to teach, which I used to do a lot, my motivation to get fit and you know, stay strong and healthy and what have you was just gone. So you know, literally one morning I got up and I did two squats and one push-up and I thought, ah, stop, that will do. Right. That is not a complete training regime. Right? Not if, you, not if you're calling yourself a professional sourcing instructor. Right. I thought, what the hell am I going to do about this? And I could have 
summoned up a whole load of self-discipline from somewhere, maybe, kind of, sort of. But instead, I just started a train-along thing three mornings a week at a time that suited me, let my students know so they can come and join and train me. So I know when I get up Monday, Wednesday, Friday, that I will have students showing up expecting me to lead them through a whole bunch of physical and that takes all the self-discipline out of it and so even if in a week where maybe I don't get any other training done because I'm fundamentally lazy or I'm busy flying planes or fixing watches or making furniture or whatever else I've at least done those three sessions and that is a whole lot more than no session and again it's about creating these external constraints that work for you yeah like I find all this gamification of stuff doesn't work for me at all. And when some <laughs> app wants me wants to give me a gold star for I don't know, having read a book or having, like, I agree. No, I am a grown up. I, I know it's just horrible. I don't want that. It doesn't work for me. It works for some people. It doesn't work for me. It just annoys me. And let's say this is actually a real example. I have one of those habit tracking apps, and it was like, okay, if I drink too much, then I have to do a thing on this app and blah blah blah. And you know what? This is just making me want to drink more. Like, <laughs> sod you. I'm not going to be like dictated to by some stupid bit of silicon and some right. flashing lights. Like, no. I'm, uh, right? So it was completely counterproductive because gamification just annoyed me to the point where I wanted to go and do the things the whole point of the game was to stop me from doing. So it doesn't work for me, but it does work for other people. What The external constraints that work for me are primarily having students who need me to do a thing. If my students need me to do it, or if my children need me to do it, or if my wife needs me to do it, or whatever, it just gets done. Right? No excuses, no exceptions, it just happens. And here's a good example. That Ahmed Zari workbook that I mentioned earlier, been sat on my hard drive 90% finished for over a year. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I need to get this done and dusted and out the door. But it's useful to people, and I'm holding it away from it. not fair. So I said... I have a newsletter which goes out every week, and I sent out an email to the, um, to the one section of the newsletter. I just said, Diamond's Ari workbook, I will have it sent off to the graphic designer for layout by the end of February, or I owe you all 50 push-ups, right? Which is, which is like, firstly, 50 push-ups for a professional martial arts instructor should be fairly trivial. So right. it's not even a very big thing. But now my students are expecting and you know what happened? You got it finished a week later, and I've got a third <laughs> of the video clips that go with it already edited, and it is way on course for being off to the graphic designer two weeks ahead of my my schedule because that external constraint of my students are expecting it of me is super effective for me. It doesn't work for everyone. And I think something we were talking about before this all started is finding that passion you have with something in life. When you enjoy what you're doing, it's not just a job because you have to or the work oh, sure. you have to do. You know, If you're loving what you do, it's easy. But then you know, for anything worth building has stages in it that are brutally horrible for everyone. So for instance, some people love writing first drafts, can't stand editing, right? I like writing first drafts, hate editing my own stuff. Hate it. Having written it, I need to get it out the door so it needs to be edited and it needs to go to layout and it needs to have all that stuff done to it. And because I have students expecting it, if I tell them that it's coming, 
that gives me the necessary impetus to get past the tricky bit because yeah, it's true for, for literally anything. Like, okay, for my flying thing, my next theory exam is air law, so I have to study air law and pass that exam, or I'm not allowed to go to the next stage. So that's just going to have to get done. It's not the fun bit. The fun bit is actually getting the plane off the ground. Getting it back down again safely is the kind of next most fun bit because it's terrifying. The same is true for like, making furniture or whatever. There's going to be bits of that process which are unpleasant. I hate sanding, for example, which is messy and horrible and noisy and nasty. When you get a good product, sometimes you have to do sanding instead of sanding gets done. And, and that's true, you know, if you are a writer in your tweed jacket with your coffee and cigar <laughs> and all that kind of stuff, having beautifully created this beautiful first draft and then maybe edited it by hand with a, or maybe produce your first draft with, with a quill pen like this one, you know, because this is how we produce our first drafts. Now, I produce my first drafts because I'm, I'm a modern person. And, and, and you can do all of that, but eventually it has to be put into a computer, converted into ordinary computer text and sent off to editors and sent off to wherever else. And then you have to come back and you have to do the corrections and adjust things, whatever. And there's going to be a nasty bit somewhere in the process for you. And again, this is one of those things where if you have in your head, oh, I am a writer, and being a writer means sitting there with a pen writing, it doesn't mean actually producing books, then it's going to cause problems. You, you get so, those parts that are hard, and that kind of makes it harder in a way. Um, yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. if it's just, this is just another hurdle I have to get over to get this thing to the people who need it. It's that, that push. If you enjoy publishing, you enjoy getting your books out, it does make it easier to do the editing uh, because yeah, sure. that's part of it, the process that you have to get done. Uh, but if the only thing you like is writing a first draft, everything else becomes super difficult. Yeah, and it's true in every domain. With parenting, like the fun bit is like playing with your kids and pushing them on swings and climbing on climbing frames and doing Jedi lightsaber fights on the sofa and all that kind of stuff. But that's the fun bit. But there are all sorts of other bits like having no sleep for ages, particularly with little babies, night feeds and nappy changes, and they get in trouble at school for something, and so you have to go and sit in the principal's office again. <laughs> my, 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 kids, I say, my kids have never, ever required me to go and sit in the principal's office, but I had to do it myself when I was at school a few times. But, there's, but without all the hard, without the difficult parts, I don't know. I, I don't think the whole process would be so meaningful or satisfying. Yeah, right. I agree. All right, Guy, we've been talking quite a while. It's been a great talk. You're, <laughs> you're wonderful to chat with. I can see why you do your own podcast. Speaking of, why don't you tell everybody, we talked about your online school website. Is there? Do you have a personal website? And tell us um, about your podcast before we go. Oh, sure. I have a, a personal website. It's being rebuilt at the moment that's guywindsor.net or .com or .org sourceschool.com is probably the best place to go to find all the things because there are links from sourceschool.com to everything else including my podcast which we have about I think episode 93 is coming out soon and we, we're recorded up to 102 so it's, it's been going out every week again it's, it was a classic pandemic project and it, it's basically me interviewing sword people and sword adjacent people not everyone who comes on the show has ever even touched the sword necessarily but i have a plausible 
for yourself. The best thing about having a podcast is you have a plausible excuse to talk to people who you wouldn't feel comfortable just saying, <laughs> oh, would you like to chat with me for an hour? Because I think you might be interesting. Right. That would be weird. But I, would you I, like to chat with me for an hour? Because I think you might be interesting for my podcast. Suddenly, <laughs> right, yeah. three extra words make it somehow culturally acceptable and normal and people say yes most of the time. So, you know, you know I've had writers on there, like, for example, Stephen Pressfield or Sebastian de Castell, Joanna Penn also, but I've, you know, also historians and living history people and just a huge range of, of people because the, the point of the podcast is called The Sword Guy. You know, my name is Guy and I like swords and so there we go. But the point of it, it actually grew out of the book Visible Women by Caroline, Caroline Criado Perez. She's a data scientist and she produced this book, which basically illustrates all these ways in which women are disadvantaged in modern society because the default expectation is male, right? Classic example, if you put, if you get a car that has a five-star safety rating on impact, uh, if you put a female-shaped size dummy in for the crash test, it might only score three stars out of five instead of five, just because they don't test them on, they don't test cars for women. And the outcome is different and women die because of it. So not true in swords too, because we have most, much of our field was founded by people like me in the 90s, okay, who are now middle-aged white men. So naturally, because representation matters, an awful lot of people who do sportsmanship today are white men, because people like them are at in senior positions in the field. And so, so what can I do about it? What can I do? I'm not even run, I don't run a school at the moment, and we've got lockdowns, so all the schools are shut, and blah, blah, blah. Ah, the representation matters. So what I'll do is I'll start a podcast, and I'll interview people, people and historians and whatnot, but at least half of my guests will be women. And I'll also try and make sure the demographic and geographical net is spread as wide as possible. So the goal is that eventually, pretty much anybody on the planet can find somebody like them who is also mad about swords or interested in swords in some way represented on my show. Nice. Yeah. It, what can a middle-aged white dude do to help this sort of thing? That seemed like something that might actually yeah. help. At least uh, uh, if everybody helped a little bit in right. some way, yeah. I, for my, I, I haven't had Joanna on, but I have had her mother. And I never really planned. I was just thinking new authors. So I never planned what type of diversity, but I've had everybody. I've had a 10-year-old. Mm -hmm. I've had a 74-year-old. That was one of my favorites. He lives in Ireland. He was 74, retired uh, lawyer that wrote a book about Tituba, the slave from the witch Salem witch trials here in the States. Oh, and I'm wow. Like, that is the, the oddest combination. A 74-year-old yeah. retired lawyer that lives in Ireland that wrote about the black slave from the American witch trial. There, that tells you I get a little of everything. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it's something that we can do as middle-aged, bald, white dudes. Right. Um, <laughs> who have, have this sort of natural advantage in our world. What, what can we do? We have a platform. We can invite people who are not exactly like us onto it. Yeah. And again, I never really even thought about that until someone said they like uh, the diversity I have. And I'm like, 
Right. Well, what do you mean? And they're like, well, you've had men, you've had women, you've had people from just about every country uh, yeah. around the world. I, I get accents uh, from all over and I'm like, oh, great. Cool. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I didn't think about it that way, but I'm glad it's happening. <laughs> yeah. So, Representation matters. And it's, it's, not a, it's not a lot to do. Running a podcast, not that much work if you do it the way I do it. <laughs> but it actually seems to help. So yeah. it's fun. And I get to talk to all these interesting people who are not like me. Yeah. You know, yeah. Who are coming fun. at it from completely different cultures, completely different backgrounds, completely different life experience or whatever. And sometimes they say things which startle me. Like, actually, you know, I just had no idea that, that would even be a thing. Like, okay. Wow. So, you know, it opens my eyes, which is always a good thing. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, guy. Close us off before we go. What would you say is your big advice for new authors that are listening? If you like writing, carry on doing it. If you don't, stop. <laughs> you don't have to. Nobody's making you. Right, exactly. And it, it should be challenging and frustrating and fun and challenging and frustrating and fun. And about those sort of proportions. Right? Like anything. Exactly. So, yeah, if you want to. It's not that hard. Even I can do it. Just get good editing, get good feedback, and you know, don't be discouraged by the hard days. We all have them. All right. Great. Guy, thank you for taking the time to chat with me My today. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Nice to meet you. Thank you for listening to Discovered Wordsmiths. Come back next week and listen to another author discuss the road they've traveled and maybe sometime in the near future, it might be you.